The Jad Spotlight, episode 22. Hey everybody, what is up? Yanni Lunga here from thejetspotlight.com and welcome to this final episode of the special edition of the Jet Spotlight podcast with some of the stars of the Pori Jets Festival 2014. Today I have a simply legendary artist here on the podcast. It's just a great day for the podcast. I'm really excited and I'm honored to have him on the podcast because he's one of my favorite bass guitar players and you know I play some bass guitar so it's just great to have him here on the show. I'm really honored to have none other than Dave Holland here on the Jet Spotlight podcast to talk about his career, to talk about his latest project Prism and plenty of other stuff. Like always, I just want to remind you that you can find the links to all the things that I mentioned and Mr. Holland mentioned at jetspotlight.com slash episode 22. It's enough with the introduction, let's get down to business. Here is a Jets talk with Dave Holland. Enjoy. Hey everybody, what's up? Yanni Lunga here and welcome to this new episode of the Jet Spotlight podcast. I hope you're having a fantastic summer and you're having a great day and I'm very happy about the guest that we have here today. You might remember from episode six where Jane Chapin asked me if, I, if I'm a musician, if I play any instrument, and I said that I like to play around with the bass guitar sometime. There is a reason why I'm telling you this, because the guest we have here today is, is just an incredible, I don't even know where to start. He has been performing for so many years as a solo artist, as a band leader with big band. He runs his own label called Dare Two. He has been playing with some of the greatest names in jazz and is one of the most influential double bass players of his generation. It's with great pleasure that I welcome on the show Dave Holland. Hey, Mr. Holland, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be with you. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been touring all over Europe. I've been following you with your new project, Prism. You've been really all over the place. And I have to ask you, don't you ever get tired of touring and traveling so much? Well, I get tired of uh, of some of the traveling part, certainly. You know, traveling by um, air is not a much fun you know the airports are very busy and crowded and there's a lot of security these days and so that part is difficult but uh, i still enjoy playing music and so i'm afraid it's part of uh, what i have to do in order to do that that's just what we do and at the end of the day we uh, we get to play music and have fun and share it with people so that's that's really what's the driving force be behind it all um, it would be very difficult to live in one place and do the kind of uh, amount of performing that I do uh, in a year, you know, mm-hmm. no one city that you could play that much in. And um, so it's a it's a necessary thing. And it's something we all all of us that are touring, we just deal with it and we try to make the best of it, you know. Mm-hmm, definitely. And, you know, you have been performing in so many countries and cities, festivals, venues of all kinds. Is there a city that has struck you the most? Which city do you always feel, you know, happy to perform to? 
Oh, I don't think I have a favorite. I mean, um, you know, every place we go has something unique and the, and the audiences uh, can be unique from one country to another. You know, the, mm-hmm. the kind of cultural um, response that they have to music and how they um, how they react at concerts, you know, how they express themselves as an audience changes with different societies. Um, so I, I don't really have a favorite. You know, I have several festivals that I enjoy going to and being a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the festivals are a lot of fun because we get to see our fellow musicians who we don't often see uh, throughout the year. So we it's a chance for us to meet not only our fans and the people that are coming to hear the music, but also uh, our uh, mu- musician friends and uh, and we can catch up on news. So that's a nice part of the performing. But uh, a favorite city? I've been very lucky. I've been to cities all over the world and I've seen wonderful places, Istanbul, uh, Paris, uh, Venice, um, London, I mean, uh, uh, Tokyo, Shanghai, um, they're all unique cities and, and it's a part of what I enjoy actually once I'm there. I like to, uh, spend time as much as I can anyway, mm-hmm. uh, absorbing what's going on, getting a feeling for the atmosphere of the place and how it feels to be there. I was recently in Russia for the first time actually. And that was a really uh, very nice experience to experience firsthand what what it feels like to be there and mm-hmm. to get a feeling for what it's like on the street. So it's a it's a benefit of what we do is that we get to see the world and you realize that people are the same everywhere you go in a fundamental way. You know, mm-hmm. um, we're all human beings. You know. Yeah. And, and you know, you just mentioned some of the greatest cities in the world, Paris, Tokyo, Shanghai, Istanbul. Is there a place where you haven't been yet where you would like to perform to? Well, I've never been to the in- India, and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see India at some point. Uh, I've only been to a, a couple of places in Africa, and, of course, there's some incredible places to visit there. Um, so I, I'd like to s- have a chance to play more on the African continent, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, the, some of the mu- music in the different regions of different countries in Africa, uh, uh, is music that I've been listening to for, uh, for many, many years, uh, um, music from the Congo, from Mali, uh, from Senegal. I, I got the chance to go to Senegal, so that was a wonderful experience, mm-hmm. but, um, Yeah, so there, there's still there's still many things to experience and to enjoy, and uh, I I hope uh, I get a chance to to uh, to visit some of these places sometime. And I'm sure that you know your fans who are maybe listening to the podcast from India or from Africa are really hoping for you to to go to perform there. And we have a lot of things to talk about today. But before we go more in in deep into you know the present and your future plans. I want to take actually a couple of steps back. Let's start from your very beginning, because I was reading that you you actually started as a kind of self-taught musician. You picked up the ukulele at the age of four, and then you went on to play guitar and then bass guitar. How did you start it with music? Well, I was living with my grandparents and my mother and her brother, my uncle. Mm-hmm. And 
uncle, uh, nobody was uh, professional musicians, but um, my uncle had various hobbies, and one of them for a short period of time was he bought a ukulele and learned to play a few chords on it. And as a young, I was about four and a half, five years old, and I was fascinated by it, and uh, he taught me a few chords, things that he knew, and that started me off. And then I pretty much... Um, kind of went my own way with it. I had a book that I was learning from, you know, it had um, tablature for the for the ukulele, and that was a starting point. Mm -hmm. I had a few piano lessons when I was about seven, but rock and roll was starting to come into my life when I was nine or ten years old, and I wanted a guitar, and that was um, my next step. And so I started meeting young people that were playing a little bit of guitar and exchanging a few ideas. And, I, you know, the term self-taught, I suppose, is true to an extent, but you really do learn from other people, even if you may not have formal lessons. You know, you, mm -hmm. you watch people and you try and learn from that. And then I... Um, I, I joined a group, my friends and I, uh, I was 13, we started a little band and I started playing bass guitar with that band and left school when I was 15 and uh, started working professionally as a musician. Mm -hmm. and, and growing up, who has been your influence or what have been your influences? Well, early on it was, you know, rock and roll, um, you know, all the music that was coming out of America. Buddy Holly, um, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, mm -hmm. Bo Diddley, Ray Charles. Um, this was all music I was listening to, and my friends and I were trying to play it. And uh, that was the first thing. And then when I started listening to jazz, the two big influences on me as a bass player were Ray Brown and Leroy Vinegar, two great bass players. And... Uh, And when I heard those uh, records, um, that's when I got myself an acoustic bass and started practicing with the records and trying to copy what I heard on the recordings. And after uh, years of, of practicing and, and gigs, you, like you, became better and better. And at the end of the 60s, you, you performed with Mal Davis. And I would like you to tell us a little bit about those times. For example, is there a moment in particular that you remember with pleasure about those days? Well, I, I remember, of course, the, the, the evening that I was playing at the Ronnie Scott Club and um, I was offered the job to, to go to America and to join Miles Davis's quintet. And that was an incredible thing. I was 21 years old and wanting to go to America. I planned to go to America later that year in 1968. So, I, I, you know, it was just an, an incredible opportunity that came to me. And, of course, the first nights of playing with the band and trying to figure out what was going on with the music, there was no rehearsals or anything. So... I had to, you know, get in there and start working, <laughs> working and trying to learn what was going on. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. And and today, who are your influences today? Oh, I listen to all kinds of music from, uh, you know, uh, classical music, uh, all kinds of different ethnic music. So I like Arabic music, Indian music, African music. Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of classical music, contemporary and uh, uh, um, and also the classic stuff, uh, uh, Western 
some classical music, I should say. Mm-hmm. But and then I listen a lot, of course, to jazz and what's going on in music, and I, I still listen to the history of the music mm-hmm. uh, and enjoy that. You know, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and all the greats that came after that. Um, but I'm also very interested in what young people are doing and what's going on with the new generations in the music, and I try to stay in touch with that. So. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm just not only a professional musician, I'm a professional listener as well. <laughs> and I, you know, I like, I like listening to music. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a part of my life. I've always done that and I get inspiration from it and pleasure as well. And, uh, my iPod reflects, uh, you know, <laughs> a tremendous range of music. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, uh, young jazz artists. Are there a couple of names that you've been re- uh, listening to recently that, you know, have surprised you that you were really like, oh, this is very good stuff? I don't want to endorse anybody because I leave people out, you know. Okay, so I, okay yeah. Just, you know, I listen to a lot of things and uh, there's a lot of players that I enjoy. I also listen to contemporary music, you know. I, I listen to Primus and Radiohead and Fish and... Uh, Aphex Twin and, you know, uh, contemporary music. Um, uh, I still listen to Jimi Hendrix, which of course I loved back when Jimi Hendrix was with us. And so, you know, I'm, I, as I said, for me, music is music. It's not, uh, a question of category to me, you know. Yeah. I think actually it's a very, very good way to put it. And, you know, kind of one understands by listening to your words why you you are who you are both as a person and as a musician i think it's really nice words and really nice way to put it also and during your career you have been really being a kind of 360 degrees <laughs> music person if we can say so because you've performed solo as band leader with big bands and last was it last year that you celebrated the 40 years as leader so uh, Congratulations also on that achievement. Thank you. I have to ask you, uh, how how does a musician such as yourself, uh, you know, e- so easily change from performing solo to go to be a band leader, performing with big bands? How do you do that? Well, you know, each situation, I mean, uh, uh, presents a, another set of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there's a continuity because, you know, you're still yourself and you're still exploring a musical language that is common to things that you do, but you adapt that language to suit the music that you're working on or that you're playing. And, uh, you know, as a bass player, I'm always trying to think about how to be supportive and complement the music that I'm involved with mm-hmm. and to find the contribution I can make as a bass player, which will uh, make the music uh, as, as good as I can, uh, as, a, as good as it can be in terms of what I can do to help that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've, I've played with a range of music, as you mentioned, from, from bluegrass music to flam- flamenco musicians, my recent project with one of the great flamenco guitarists, Pepe Habishuela was an incredible experience for me. I spent three years um, taking trips to Spain to sort of study with him, really, and mm-hmm. to uh, gradually uh, learn about the music from Pepe. And uh, 
and then eventually do the recording, which was called Hands. And, uh, you know, for me, um, the opportunity to play in different situations helps me grow as a player to play with different musicians and to um, find challenges in in how to play uh, their music as well as my own. Um, th- th- this is all an important part of of trying to continue to grow as I get older and, and to still uh, have opportunities to develop the music. So, um, you know, trying to keep an open mind and, uh, and be open to the possibilities. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I do feel that there is a, a central train of thought going on through all these things and something that ties it all together. And, um, uh, uh, and it's really, you just, I, I suppose you could relate it in the same way as when you're, when you're hanging out with different people, you know, you relate to different aspects of personalities, whoever you're talking to. And some, somebody might be interested in sports and you speak about that. And somebody might be interested in a certain book or, and you speak about that. And in music, it's the same. You find a connection with a musician. And then you enter into a musical conversation with them and you find out the common meeting points mm-hmm. and then build on those. And and speaking of conversation, your latest conversation has been with Kevin Eubanks, Craig Tabern and Eric Harland as Prism, the group with which you have been touring now Europe for, for some weeks. And what plans do you have for the rest of the summer? Are you still going to be touring in Europe? Yeah, we have, uh, well, we're touring now until the end of July and then we go back to America and we, we play the Newport Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then I'm coming over to England to be involved in a youth jazz workshop program that I've been involved with for about seven years. That's being the artistic director is, is a lady called Izzy Barrett and the organization is called the New Youth Jazz Collective, NYJC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we're, we're working with 12 to 18 year old, uh, young musicians, which I, I find very satisfying to work with young people at that stage. And after that, I'm coming over to, uh, I go to Italy and do some performances with, uh, with Kevin and Eric, Kevin Eubanks and Eric Harland. And then we go directly from there to the Chicago Jazz Festival and the, uh, and the Cleveland and the Detroit Jazz Festival. And, uh, Craig Taborn will join us for those two concerts, uh, at those festivals. And then I'm taking a, a short break in September and, uh, part of October. Um, uh, and then I'll be coming back to Europe in November with Kenny Barron, the pianist. Mm-hmm. I've been performing with the last couple of years, doing some duet concerts with, and we've got a recording that's going to be released in September. All right. Plenty of interesting stuff coming up. So, Dave Holland fans, keep your ears open and eyes open because you you never know. It might be that Dave Holland and Kevin Eubanks and Craig Tyburn or Kenny Barron are going to be performing in your town. And I want to go for a moment to the educational part of your career because you were talking about the the workshop that you are artistic director for and i want to ask you now you work closely with uh, with young musicians how is how is jazz today how has jazz changed in these last few years 
but I can't categorize it in one way. I mean, it's um, the music has always been um, rep- no, the music has always been represented by individuals who are each, you know, finding their own way. And so, when you ask in which ways has it evolved, I mean, it's evolved in many, many ways. Um, uh, it's it's an inclusive music, and so it it adopts all kinds of um, other kinds of musical languages as well as the language that's inherent to jazz and the history of jazz. So it just goes in many directions. But I will say this, you know, that the more I listen to young players, the more uh, I'm inspired about the energy and the emotional uh, and the commitment that's being made by young players it that doesn't change and and um uh, they're taking the influences that they're living through and and experiencing and coming up with uh with the new music that, that's going to be the future of our music mm-hmm. yeah and and talking still about about the present and and these days now nowadays with social media like facebook twitter there is a more close relationship, at least in a way, between artists and and uh, music fans. Uh, what do you think about, you know, like Twitter, for example, like in terms of the the way you use it as a promotional tool? Is it something that you that you enjoy using, or is it somehow a bit of an over overwhelming tool in the in the sense that there are a lot of people, so a lot of tweets that go out every second? Well, uh, I I don't I. Don't, I... I see it really as an extension of what's always happened, which is, you know, after the gig, uh, you meet some people that have come to the mu- to hear the music and you have some exchanges with them. And the only difference now is that we can do that on a global level uh, and the community that shares an interest in a particular music or musician can have some direct contact with that. And certainly it, I... I agree it can be a very useful promotional tool, but I use Twitter not just for promotion. Mm-hmm. I, I like to kind of have a narrative going on. I put up pictures of places that I'm at and uh, events that are going on. And, you know, uh, it's not just to say, come and hear the concert. It's also to say, this is what's going on, mm-hmm. what it's like being on the road. This is what happened today, you know, that kind of thing. So, um I try to make it interesting, but um, and and Facebook as well. You know, Facebook is great because you can really uh, put up videos and share um, things with with people who are interested in your music. You can share things that maybe they're not aware of and that they haven't heard. The videos on YouTube that come from historical things and so on. Mm-hmm. So. That's uh, I find that very good, and I I I see it as sort of a, uh, just a way of keeping in touch with with the people who are interested and like the music, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, it it does serve uh, some uh, promotional um, uh, uh, meaning, you know. That we 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 can let people know about gigs, and you know, I have a website, DaveHolland.com, where people can see what my touring plans are and what recordings are coming out and they can listen to recordings on the website without having to buy them. They can listen to tracks and, uh, and, uh, hopefully eventually support the music by, um, by either downloading something or, but if they don't want to, at least they can enjoy it. They mm-hmm. can hear it. 
they can see photos and videos on the website as well. So, you know, to me, it's um, it's a service I think that we provide for uh, for the people that are doing so much to help us continue do what we do. Without our audience, we can't uh, we can't do it. Yeah, kind of a way of saying thank you. You know. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I really like and appreciated what you said about the idea of expanding what's happening after a concert. I think it's really important that it was nice to hear you explaining about, you know, the way you use Twitter. So trying to be uh, to have an interesting account with a narrative and, you know, to give fans some kind of behind the scenes look in a way to, you know, where you are, uh, what you're what you're doing. And I think it's a very good point and you know i think that for many of our listeners especially those who are artists artists should definitely go and check out dave holland on twitter because on episode two with bob yozinski we talked specifically about uh, promotion online uh, both on websites and social media and we have talked about the you know the some of the mistakes artists and people in the music industry make on twitter and and one of them was exactly the opposite of what you said. So you use it as a not not primarily as a promotional tool, but you try to be interesting, as you said. Whereas I'd, other art, what I try to do is to sort of humanize the the experience of being a musician. You know, mm-hmm. I think people have a false impression sometimes that there's this sort of separation between the person who's a musician and the person who's a human being, <laughs> and I, I and that's definitely not the case you know we're out here living our lives and having experiences and um you know i i think it it's it's good for people to see that um there's a life going on Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the music you know yeah no definitely and i also like this uh, concept of the humanization you know of the artist also on twitter because one of the mistakes bob yozinski talked about is the fact that artists just use twitter to say come to my show come to my show come to my show and basically their twitter stream is just a copy paste with just different you know a venue and date and that's pretty much it and i think it's it's a good idea for our listeners to to go and follow dave holland on twitter and and check out the way he's using twitter as well as his website he talked about it daveholland.com i'm looking at his website also now and he talked about the opportunity that he gives to to his fans to listen to his music on the website and there are plenty of different things. Also, the event sections where you can be updated where to uh, Mr. Holland is going to be performing next. There are uh, photos, videos, uh, the contact page and the electronic press kit. I think it's a very well put together website, uh, Mr. Holland. And I really recommend to, to our listeners to go and check it out. DaveHolland.com, both to enjoy the music, but also to, you know, to maybe steal some of, <laughs> of the tactics let's call them tactics that mr holland uh, uses on his website now i want there's to also, um there's also uh, maybe uh, you you see there also there's a section where you can actually uh have access to getting copies of scores and music as well so mm-hmm. the musicians can actually get copies of music to, to so they can play some of the compositions and so on 
Mm-hmm. No, I, I think it's it's a very this that you just talked about. It's a very good feature, you know, for for musicians, a double bass player, bass players. It's a, it's very good, and it's a very good thing of you to do for your for your fans, you know, to be so open and and transparent. And now I would like to go back more to the music side of our conversation in a way, and to talk about bands for a moment because. We, we have been talking about, about Prism, about the duets with Kenny Barron. And I would like to tell us a little bit more about how, how can one form a band? Because some of our listeners are artists themselves and they might be wondering, you know, what is the, the way of, of form, of forming a band or what are some, some things that they can do in order to, to put a band together? Well, I can only speak for what what I feel is important mm-hmm. to me, but it's you know it's different for different people. Um, yeah, definitely. I, th- yeah. I think obviously a key issue is to it, the reason for putting a band together is in order to create a situation where people that you want to play with can play together, mm-hmm. and that's been my motivation from the beginning. It, but in my case also. I always felt that a key component was that there was original music. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, you can have a band and have it be very satisfying and meaningful, uh, and use compositions written by other people. That's no problem. I think what is important is that you have a concept for the group, something that you're trying to make a reality musically and something that you will be fulfilling to you and the and the other musicians this is very important mm-hmm. because i think when you put a project together it's important to think about the other people as well as yourself it's important to think about what they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. and how you can give them as much creative space and freedom as possible also so um i i really you know just basically uh through my musical experiences, meet people that I want to play with. And uh, at some point, I, I, I end up putting a group together of people that I feel would be compatible and, and could pursue a particular direction in the music that I would like to take and that I think they would also. Mm-hmm. And I try to, you know, I try to work with, with the energy that's there, not to not to dictate what's going to happen in a sense, in an absolute way, uh, but rather to think about it as as kind of creating a platform for something to happen. Mm-hmm. And and but then you know I don't always know exactly what's going to happen. I wait. I, you know that's that's something that's always interesting to me. Is you know I have the idea. Well, this could be this could be a nice project. Let me see what happens. And we get it started and it will go in some directions that I would never have dreamed of, you know, and that's, that's wonderful. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that I think for me anyway, it, it, you know, it takes a certain openness and, uh, willingness to, to, um, pay attention to what the elements are and what can be done and to allow a sort of, organic natural development to happen in the band mm-hmm. no th- those are very nice words uh, mr holland and about the the openness and also what you said that even <laughs> even to you it still happened that sometimes you kind of don't know the direction in which the 
you know, the experience with the band is gonna go. I think it's, it's very nice, this, this concept in a way to, you know, not to be afraid of taking risks. They are not real risks, but you know. No, they, no, you have to be willing to take risks because life is meaningless without taking risks. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Coleman Hawkins once said, if you're not uh, making mistakes, you're not really trying. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, be prepared to fail sometimes in order to discover what can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and this is really part of the long tradition. You know, Duke Ellington, uh, put together an amazing band of musicians and worked with the elements that were there. Mm -hmm. He didn't tell everybody what to do. He just created a situation where they could do what they did already. Yeah. And when John Coltrane joined Miles Davis's band, at the beginning he kept asking Miles, what is it you want me to do? Mm -hmm. Miles just kept turning his back on him and walking away. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so Coltrane for a while was a little, you know, concerned what was going on. And then he said, I suddenly realized that it was my job to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm that I shouldn't be looking to Miles to tell me that. Mm -hmm. That, to me, was one of the great things about Miles Davis, was that he knew that what was important was to tap into the creative resources that are available in the musicians that worked with him. Mm -hmm. That was a very interesting anecdote and, and also hilarious to some extent. But again, you're, you're saying very wise things. And I'm sure that the listeners that are listening to the podcast, especially those who are musicians, can really benefit from, from this kind of advice. And also another question that I have for you, uh, many um, kind of up and coming artists or, or young bands often try to to find uh, prominent artists to perform with or to be opening bands for also to uh, increase their their reputation and you know their following uh, what advice would you have for those kind of young artists like how can they approach musicians such as yourself <laughs> and you know to try to have a collaboration yeah i don't think that usually is the case how things work I think how things work is that you work on your music, mm -hmm. you let that take care of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, there is of course some, some value in taking some responsibilities for the business side of things. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that in the music community that it's usual that a musician will go to a, a somebody who is already established and say, how can I, get on a concert that you're, you're, you're playing or things like that. You know, you, you, you need to be invited mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you make your recordings and you do your music and you try to take the opportunities that are available to you and make the most of them and hope that that will get some people interested in what you do. And one thing leads to another. In my case, you know, it was not a quick process. It took some time. I, I, of course, yes, I, I played with Miles Davis when I was 21 and that was an amazing thing. And I played with some great players, but in terms of establishing my own group, I didn't start a band until I was 35, mm -hmm. 36. And it was not easy at the beginning. People, just because you've played with other people doesn't give you credibility as a band leader. Mm -hmm. 
and promoters are not going to take a chance on booking you even in a club unless they feel that they have a chance of selling tickets as with your name on the front of the club. So it's something that has to be worked on slowly. And of course, yes, there are some young musicians who do uh, have success quite relatively early as band leaders. That's that's the case, but it's not always. Mm-hmm. And, I, and for me, I was always thinking that I just had to take care of the music as much as I could and to take as much responsibility as I could in the business without you know, obviously being too pushy or, or aggressive, you know, cause that's not appreciated either, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's, uh, but, but I, I always feel that the music should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. If the music has value and if people like it, then you'll eventually have a chance to, um, to perform it. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree with you. And it, I think it's really important for, for all the artists who are listening to us at, at this very moment to, to invest in themselves and in their music, like you just said. And, and for sure, also to keep in mind that like many things in life, also music career, it's a, it's a marathon. It's a, it's a process. It's not something that, you know, it's a, it's, it's not a sprint to use a, to use a metaphor. So we have been talking about many things about about your music, a little bit about the the teaching aspect of your career, and I would like to wrap up this episode with a question about your your uh, business as a as a label owner. You have launched your your label back in 2005 there too. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you how did you come up with the with the idea and the, you know the will to to start your own label? Well, I wanted to 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 uh have ownership of the recordings for quite some time and uh i discussed the op- uh, the idea of perhaps leasing the recordings to ECM who i i recorded with ECM for over 30 years 34 years i think and had a very very uh you know productive relationship with ECM Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt that there was a point where I would like to start to uh, have a, more control over how, when and how the recordings were done in, in terms, I don't, I'm not talking about the music because ECM always gave me complete artistic freedom, mm-hmm. but I'm talking more about ske- when to schedule the recording, when to schedule the release, what the cover would look like, what, Uh, how the promotion would be done, um, all these different things. And as, as I said, also that the re- recording would, would belong to, to me and my family because in the normal recording relationship with a record company, you pay for all the recording costs out of your royalties, uh, and you pay for all the musicians fees and everything. But at the end of that, the, the record company owns the recording. And to me, that's always seemed like, you know, when you buy a car, uh, you pay for the car, uh, but then at the end of paying for the car, it belongs to the car company. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so that never quite felt right to me. And there's been musicians before me, like Charles Mingus, Horace Silver, Duke Ellington, who, and Max Roach, who, and many others who made attempts and in some cases were successful in having more independence in that respect. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, I'd wanted this for many, many years. Uh, and as I said, discussed with ECM the idea of leasing the recordings, in which case they would license them from me, but they would still belong to me. Uh, but the ECM uh, uh, w was not really uh, interested in doing that. And so in uh, 2003, um, I saw an opportunity to start the label and made the first release on it, which was the big band album called Over Overtime. Mm -hmm. It was the second big band album. The first one was on ECM and it won a Grammy. And uh, the second one was already recorded. By that time, I was doing the whole production myself for ECM and paying for it. Mm -hmm. And then they would reimburse me the cost. So I'd already paid for the second big band album. And and at that point, I thought, well, listen, it's all paid for. Let me just see if I can put it out. So my manager um, approached um, Universal France with the idea of licensing it. Mm -hmm from a company that we would start, which was Dare Two Records. And that's how the label started. The first three records were under licensing agreement with Universal France. Mm -hmm. and, and then I, I got my own distribution connection in America and digital, um, digital uh, distribution. Um, and of course with iTunes as well. And I just saw the timing was good as well because of the growth of the internet mm -hmm. and changing methods of buying music and, and, and people, uh, accessing music. I just saw that to be a good timing and good opportunity for me to do it. So that's, and I, I, I've only been recording my own music. I, I didn't want to take on the responsibility of, promoting and 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 uh, distributing other people's recordings because I felt that was too much to take on but we've we've had, I think eight releases so far um, with this last record prism and I've got several digital releases that are going to be happening which is something in the future I'm going to be doing more of things that are only digital releases we already have two on the label already and I've got a lot of live recordings that I've been doing with my own recording equipment and a sound engineer mm -hmm. they're all archived and we've got all kinds of things that are there ready to be mixed and can be released in the future so that's my plans very 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 cool cool things to hear and for those who are listening who would like to learn more about dare to you can actually go to daveholland.com slash dare to you can where you can find more information about the label and also the list of the records that has been released uh, under the label so far mr holland thank you so much for being with us today for telling us more about yourself about your music and about your label and for giving us some wise words and some very useful tips for all the listeners of the jet spotlight podcast thank you very much it's very nice talking to you and uh, send me a link to your podcast and i'll i'll make sure that i post it on facebook and twitter that definitely thank you all right thank you very much All right, we are back. First thing first, Mr. Holland, thank you so much for a great interview. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It means a lot. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And also a big thank you to all the guests of this special edition of the Jazz Spotlight podcast. Pierre Chrétien of the Soul Jazz Orchestra, Kevin Eubanks, Mark Carey, Jose James, Zara McFarlane, 
and Jamie Cullum. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And a big shout out also to the Porridge Festival, the organizing team of the Porridge Festival. And a big thank you also to Matti Laipio who helped me coordinating the interviews. Matti, if you're listening to this episode, thank you very much. I had a great time in Pori. So this is the last episode of this special edition of the podcast, but I have a big news for you. The podcast is going to continue. And guess what? Another great guest is coming on the podcast next week. I'm not going to give you any hint this time. If you want to learn more, you have to wait just a few days and then go to thejetspotlet.com slash episode 23. I'm Yanni Lunga and this is the special edition of the Jet Spotlight podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.